Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. happy to have with me Mark Winborn, who is a clinical psychologist and Jungian analyst out of Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, he's written extensively. Um, just from my limited exposure, I would say that he's actually um, being very creative. He's not so much a doctrinaire Jungian, he's beginning to push the envelope. So that fits well with <laughs> our audience generally. So with that, uh, Mark, can you just give us a little thumbnail sketch of yourself and your work? Um, sure, that'd be fine, Piers. And uh, thanks for the invitation to speak to Resistance Recovery. I uh, came up through clinical psychology, got my PhD in clinical psychology at University of Memphis, uh, was active duty in the Army as a psychologist for four years and then went into private practice and started the Jungian uh, psychoanalytic training through the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and graduated from there in 99. So I've been practicing as an analyst about 22 years and as a psychologist, uh, 34 years. Um, I teach a wide variety of places, the Interregional Society that I mentioned the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich, the Moscow Association for Analytical Psychology. Wow. Uh, the, uh, those are those are my my regular gigs, let's call them. Uh, <laughs> and then I have a variety of uh, other one off or uh, intermittent teaching gigs in the U.S. and other places. Just because you piqued my curiosity and I have to ask, is there a really vibrant uh Jungian scene in, in Moscow, in Russia? Yeah, it's one of the really quickly growing areas, kind of in, the, in North America and Europe. The Jungian uh, scene, I would say, is, has been somewhat on the decline uh, as, they, as those areas get really influenced by things like cognitive behavioral therapy, short-term solution-focused stuff. Mm -hmm. And as the analyst population ages, uh, I'm a I'm 61, and I'm a relatively young guy in the in the Jungian world. Um, but in Eastern Europe, in particular, not just Russia, but all of Eastern Europe, uh, Asia, and South America, it's really going through a growth spurt. Uh, wow. And those, those are the fastest growing areas right now in the Jungian world. And so there's, there is a lot of interest and I teach, uh, I've got one ongoing seminar I do for the Moscow Association that's meets monthly and then three different supervision groups of either analysts or people who are in training to be uh, Jungian psychoanalysts uh, that are on an ongoing uh, basis as well. So, and actually my, my latest book, Interpretation in 
Jungian analysis, art and technique is gonna come out and uh, published in Russia this month. Wow, wow, wonderful, congratulations. Thank you, yeah. That's, good. That's so good to hear because, you know, toiling in the fields here, we definitely see the domination of CBT and big pharma and brief therapy, so. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the fastest growing area is actually China, interestingly. And as China has developed a middle class, they've really sought out therapeutic um, modalities that will help them develop an understanding of uh, in a sense of individual identity in which the culture didn't really encourage the development of an individual identity. You know, you were in service to the party and there were the, the party leaders and then there were all of the they didn't have a, a large middle class until they started the, in a sense, the expansion of capitalism within uh, the Chinese model. Yeah, that's fascinating. Boy, that's really fascinating, actually. Um, well, having read those articles, I can see that you're really, um, you're taking things into a different direction. And the, I guess a good place to start would be the chapter you wrote on reverie, mm -hmm. which I found fascinating. So maybe um, as a way of starting, could you talk about what you mean by reverie? Yeah, there's, um, it, it, to think of it as kind of a dreamy-like state that we go into automatically, we're geared to do this. Um, that we go into automatically when we don't have a specific task at hand. You know, think of the metaphor I use in that chapter that you read, watching the clouds together. Now, we can watch the clouds individually and have a reverie. You know, and we're not really trying to do anything when we lay on our backs on the grass and watch the clouds and imagine what we see in the clouds or we just enjoy the the sensation of them floating by in a, in a warm summer breeze crossing our face. There's not an agenda. So our minds are free to float. Our hearts are free to float. Our mm -hmm. feelings are free to bubble up. And our culture, particularly in the U.S., does not encourage that sort of thing. You mm -hmm. know, um, the uh, th there was a New York Times article that said uh, busyness is the new badge of affluence. You know that the idea that if you're not busy all of the time, there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. You know that you ought to have uh, you know 15 meetings scheduled a week and be working at least an hour longer than you're at you're asked to and that you should have uh, all sorts of activities filled up for your weekend and that's the badge of a uh, you know of honor and so this is really kind of antithetical to our culture uh, to have dreamy like states not just the one I'm describing like watching the clouds together but uh like there was uh, an article called Deep Listening. Uh, and it was an article about how we used to listen to albums in the 
1950s and 1960s, where you dim the lights, go down in the, you know, the basement if you had one, lay on the couch and listen to an entire album uninterrupted. Mm -hmm. And that fosters a different kind of being with oneself. And all of this stuff is actually demonstrable through neuroscience. We have a couple of different general modes of being that our mind engages in. And one's called the task specific mode. So when you're thinking about what do I need to do at work today? What do I need to do when I get off work? I need to go by the grocery store. I need to pick up milk because we're going to run out before the end of the week. That's all task specific stuff. What am I going to wear tomorrow? There's another mode that we go into default mode network when our brain isn't geared towards doing anything. But what happens is, is when you disrupt default mode, you disrupt somebody's ability to go in the default mode network and they can measure this in a functional MRI machine. And you disrupt it each time the brain tries to go into that reverie state. There's all sorts of physiological processes that begin to happen. Rest does not become restorative. For example, scientists who spend 18 or 20 hours in the lab trying to get to a particular place and they don't allow themselves restorative time, not just sleep, but time where they don't, they're not doing something. They're actually less creative in the lab. They, they see ideas, solutions to issues uh, less easily. Same thing with artists, same thing with writers. Everybody needs a time when they're not doing anything in the course of their day. Now, for some, there, there's some similarity to meditation, but even meditation, in a sense, has a goal. Mm -hmm. This is time without a goal. Mm -hmm. But we can also access these states in others of our lives. And so as an analyst, I'm trying to drop into a reverie state when I'm with a patient all of the time, eight hours a day, all the time, because what comes up in my reverie is often useful and helpful to me with the patient and sometimes tells me things about what's happening with the patient that I wouldn't be able to figure out if I was just concentrating on questions like what's happening here? What should I call this? How should I intervene? Those yeah. are all task specific type of questions as opposed to a feeling of what's happening and then wondering what does this feeling tell me about what's transpiring between this person and myself. So that goes, you know, and you mentioned this in the article, um, in the chapter, but that really goes against a lot of our training that we're supposed to be fully attendance, uh, paying close attention, um, especially if we are working in some sort of insurance model where we have to mm-hmm. And you're suggesting that drifting off, coming back, you're even at some point, you suggest certain analysts can get to a place where they're kind of doing a double bookkeeping, if you will. They're, they're doing both. But that's actually, a, a, what would we call it, an essential skill set yeah. to doing this kind of work? Right. And the hardest skill set to learn, even though it's the most natural skill set, because we do it automatically, we just don't realize we're doing it. Mm-hmm. When we realize we're doing it and we can kind of 
try to ride the wave, so to speak, it becomes a much more effective tool. But yes, we're, we're trying to, as analysts, therapists, the idea would be to have two parts of you, what I call the participating ego, the, the ego, the awareness of myself participating in a process and therefore subject to those processes on a feeling emotional level. And then the observing part of me that can essentially look at myself and the patient, it, it not exactly objectively because we can't be completely objectively, but I can be at a different viewing point and kind of say to myself, oh, look, your heart is racing up. What's going on here? And I can hold that question and wonder about it. And the wondering may lead me to some ideas about what's happening with the patient or what's happening between us. Is it safe to say that, um, that it's sometimes in friendship, this is always happening when you are hanging out with somebody that you're, you know, you're relaxed and you're just doing your thing and the conversation's going where it wants to, that we are automatically sliding in and out of the state? That's, I would say that's part of it when, because there's a, uh, I think a feeling of safety and security that helps to facilitate reverie. I would say that the highest level of that is when you and this other person can slip in and out of conversation. And when you can slip into long silences, you know, several minutes, maybe half an hour even, where you're both aware that something's kind of transpiring, but you don't feel compelled to talk about it. Mm -hmm. You're not hiding anything, but it just doesn't feel necessary to comment on what's happening inside, but you're both in the same place experiencing something that's somehow connected, but there's no motivation, no urge, let's call it, to uh, need to define what's happening. You can just enjoy the presence of each other. I think that's the, for me, the hallmark of the deepest reverie that's shared with somebody else. Hmm. So you're with, by tapping into this concept of reverie, you're, are you, are you naming something that happens in analysis that hasn't really been named or are you shifting the dialogue away from more conventional concepts of transference and counter-transference and active imagination and all this sort of thing? All of those things, transference, counter-transference, would fall under a broader umbrella of reverie. Mm. Now, some, some people are do, don't have the name reverie and are doing it naturally without needing to be, uh, in a sense, instructed to do it or to think about doing it. Um, I'm not coming up with a new language. This was introduced into the psychoanalytic uh, vocabulary by a guy named Wilfred Bion, uh, who was a British analyst who ended up immigrating to the U.S. during the latter part of his life and spending the last five years of his life in uh, Los Angeles. And he was really kind of an interesting character. He started out as a, a student of Melanie Klein's who specialized in analysis with children and eventually came to not disown those ideas, but to develop his own vocabulary that really 
uh, is quite oriented towards pulling out the ephemeral in an experience. And so he gave his concepts these odd abstract names uh, because he didn't want to put too many expectations on what one would find in that conceptual experience. So he called all that is unknown and beyond ourselves, capital O in quotation marks, because O for him was a, it was a uh, sign of emptiness. Uh, he didn't want to tell you what to find in O. So when Jung talks about the transcendent or the collective unconscious, he's, there, there's some expectations about what you're going to find there. Beyond's talking about the same thing, but he's trying not to cultivate expectations. So Beyond introduced the term reverie from uh, some earlier work called maternal reverie, work on mothers and infants. And he noticing the kind of dreamy state that a mother goes into when she's, for example, when she's nursing a baby and it's going well, the baby is feeding well, isn't struggling to get the milk out. The milk's flowing easily from the mother. All of the oxytocin neurotransmitter is releasing in the mother. And she enters into a kind of a reverie state where she's not thinking exactly about what's going on. She's more in the sensation of what this entire gestalt of the experience feels like, but her primary focus is the infant but focused in an unfocused way. So he picks up that term and says, and says that in, in a sense, the best work that we can do will be done from this state. The best work as therapists, as analysts that we can do will be done from this state. And that there's some positive benefits to ourselves from entering into that state. Mm. So I feel really fortunate and a, a great deal of gratitude that I have a, a uh, an occupation that allows me to try to go into these states in and out throughout the course of the day. So th there's a way in which I'm deriving benefit from even being in a setting where I can do that, where I have the, the privilege to do that, as opposed to it's hard to do that. You know, if you're on an assembly line and you've got to make sure your finger doesn't go into the press. Yeah. You yeah. can't be in a reverie state if you're working an assembly line. That's not healthy for you. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, or if you're, maybe if you're stocking shelves in a grocery, I don't know, you might be able to go on automatic pilot and get into a kind of reverie state there. Uh, but, but I recognize that there is a degree of privilege in, ev in even introducing this term and that some people's lives, uh, it, it's difficult for the life circumstances to permit something like that. Yeah, it seems like we're so much bound to clock time and linear time that, mm -hmm. yeah, but it's actually probably a more natural human state that, that what right. we're doing by, by limiting it is actually unnatural in some sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So was that, was, was this constellation of ideas kind of an aha thing for you or were you just getting a name for something that you were already doing. No, I, I could, in one particular supervisor, 
I could see she was doing something else that other analysts that were supervising me and that I was taking classes from were not doing. Uh, and she could utilize, I could see that she could utilize what was happening in her in a very different way than these other analysts could do. And that she drew from it naturally and regularly. Mm. And so she wasn't searching around for some myth to tell me or some fairy tale to tell me, even though that can be useful at times, most of her activity was turning inward, searching for what might, uh, some clue as to what might be going on for her or for her patient. And it took, it was a while before she, she gave it that, she identified what she was doing as being associated with reverie. So to me, I didn't even have any clue what that meant. You know, I'm thinking like, what is this? Some kind of semi uh, self-hypnosis state. Hmm. It just seemed like esoteric magic to me. But after I started reading the literature and I realized, oh, this is something much more mundane than I'm imagining it on some sense, in the sense that it doesn't matter what the, your reverie is about, you know, it could be about some song that you heard 30 years ago. Mm. It's the belief or the faith that that song that drifts into your head, rather than being a distraction or a failure to maintain attention, might actually be something important. Mm. Mm. So it's like... Uh, there's another analyst, Thomas Ogden, that writes about reverie a lot. And um, he, he tries to think of the entire session, every session of therapy is like a dream. And so he's trying to get into a dreamy state mm. and talks about it as he and the patient dreaming a dream together. Mm. Not a literal nocturnal dream, but a kind of dreaming that's done while awake. That's not exactly daydreaming where it's wish fulfillment. Oh, I wish I would win a million dollars in the lottery, or I wish somebody would give me a Ferrari. He's not talking about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So anyway, in watching her work, sensing there was something really different, then I started going to the psychoanalytic literature on this, going to Wilfred Bion, going to Thomas Ogden, and reading about it, then it became a tool that was is not well integrated into the Jungian world, mm -hmm. even though we have some concepts that are can be thought of as similarly, like active imagination could be thought of as a kind of reverie, uh, which is a specific technique that Jung developed, uh, both to continue to do work on a dream, for example, in a waking state, or to engage in dialogues with the figures from your own unconscious. Mm -hmm. So it's not that there's nothing similar in Jungian world, but usually active imagination is thought of as something that is done by an individual with their own imagery. Mm -hmm. The analyst isn't engaging in an active imagination with the patient. Reverie can be thought of as something we do alone or something interpersonal and interpsychic that we do with somebody else, whether they're aware that they're doing it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it seems like it takes us so much more readily into, um, 
I'm, I'm going to, the words are going to break down, but something like um, awareness of affect. Absolutely. Yeah. It, ideally, it isn't, there can be thoughts and concepts that come up, but we don't privilege those. We try to hold um, what Freud called evenly suspended attention. Now, he was talking largely about an in, um, evenly suspended attention about the patient. And what I'm talking about is evenly suspended attention about our own internal processes. Mm -hmm. And so it may be affective, it may be imagery, it may be thoughts, it may be songs, could be a physical sensation, uh, you know, like a tingling in my neck, a tightness in my chest, uh, a twitching in a finger, any of those things I would include the somatic as part of the reverie as well, that my body's in the reverie. Now, it may not be the most prevalent part of the reverie, but I, I'm trying to remain keeping all of the doors and windows open for anything to enter that needs to enter. Yeah, you give an example of, um, I don't know if it was one of your sessions or Ogden's about the keys. Uh, yeah, that's from a session of mine where there was a patient who brought in and set her his keys down on uh, the end table near the chair that people sit in. Um, and I noticed my attention kept coming to the keys and I had several thoughts that emerged, a feeling of uneasiness. Uh, that's a feeling obviously, uh, as though the patient might leave quickly, that they were at the ready. Or then I started turning to fantasies of the ignition key and what's trying to get turned on in here. So those are the two that come back to mind now. I can't remember exactly all of the permutations I wrote about, but that would be the kind of thing. Now, in that case, I couldn't connect what my attention was focused to to something that was happening in the session so i just let those go i didn't bring those out and incorporate those into my interactions with the patient but i you know it was strong enough that i notated it to myself and so it became it becomes an example of a reverie that does not get utilized in an actual session and then there's other reveries i mentioned uh, that do become part of the fabric of our dialogue. And I can imagine that if you're seeing somebody over a period of time, things from previous sessions may re come around and yeah. Absolutely. That's part, certainly part of the tapestry that gets woven and the familiar threads. And sometimes you're making links between events that are happening now and events that have happened quite a long time ago in the therapy and that that's kind of a consolidative cohesion building experience for the patient because the patients often uh, I find have forgotten things they've told me that interestingly are very prominent in my mind but have become less prominent in theirs mm -hmm. so it's a very useful thing for them to be remembered in that way mm-hmm mm -hmm. And you talk in the chapter about the, the relative um, readiness of patients to do this, that some are much, they have a much greater aptitude and other folks 
you might even have to be a little bit wary about introducing some of these things into the session. Right. That, that's true. A lot of, you know, the capacity to process our own inner experience is varies widely. Some people come into therapy, they have a very general idea about what they want to get out of therapy, like something, I just want to feel better. You know, there's not much specificity. They don't really know why they're there or what's available. So I'm going to go much more slowly and I'm going to introduce things that I think are most readily digestible to the patient that are closest to the surface of the patient's awareness. As their capacity grows, um, then I'll begin to introduce ideas, images, experiences that are more oblique and more subtle, more nuanced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for example, somebody might come in and there, there's, there, it's not that they can't think, but they don't reflect, you know, whether it's somebody who has the idea of I'm angry at Bob, I want to punch Bob, I'm going to punch Bob, I punch Bob, and there's no thought processes. Now, why do I, why am I so angry at Bob? What's going to happen if I punch Bob? Am I going to go to jail? Am I going to get a lawsuit? You know, whatever. There's no, there's no linkages to the consequences of that. So there's feeling that goes directly to action. Now, I'm exaggerating just a bit for the sake of our argument, but there's people that come in and live their lives largely like that. You know, somebody who's struggled with substance abuse, that's a pretty common pattern. I feel like shit, I'm going to go get drunk. Sure. Um, and, and there's not much going on. And so all of recovery actually tries is partially an attempt to build up intervening steps between the feeling and the action. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the whole idea of sponsorship is one of those, yeah. as you and your audience well know, is an idea of trying to place an intervening step. And if they can have the thought, oh, I'm feeling really on the edge, I should call my sponsor right now, that might avert a really catastrophic relapse. Yeah. That's the same thing. So we're trying to build in that kind of awareness about a much wider variety of issues and to create the greatest range of freedom of response for uh, the patients that come to see me. What's so interesting when you bring up substance abuse is that, you know, when I work with clients, um, yeah, everything is about effective awareness. And of course, using is all about effective regulation. But what's so um, so disturbing is that they've all, you know, I have clients that are frequent flyers in treatment mm -hmm. myself. And they show up and they've just had this thing drilled into them that it's going to be some sort of cognitive intervention that they do in the perfect moment. You know, they're going to develop this kind of Kung Fu vigilance about <laughs> it, it just doesn't work because there's no, there's no, there's no self-knowledge. There's no depth. Mm -hmm. There's no really getting in there and really working that material over. Um, 
and so it's just it's just amazing to probably you know I'm sure most of our audience would mm -hmm. concur that they keep they persist in giving us a modality that does not even touch affect. You know, wow. there's behaviorism, which is stay sober, mm -hmm. cognitive, think through the drink. And then that realm of affect is just the domain of big pharma. You know, take pills to change your affect. And it's just, you know, ineffectual. Right. And for, you know, I certainly, uh, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, I'm in any way active in the recovery uh, community. I do see patients for whom substance abuse is an issue. And one of the things that I tell them in various ways over and over again is you're focused on interrupting a behavior. And you think that interrupting a behavior is going to lead to some sort of stability. But that behavior, that what I'll call a symptom, that symptom is driven by something. And that something is fear, it's sadness, it's loneliness, it's grief, it's insecurity, you know, it's inflation, it's something. There is an affective driver to the symptom of drinking. Drinking rarely becomes a central issue for anyone that doesn't have an active or substance abuse that doesn't have an act, active emotion driving that behavior. And I would say that's true for any behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what the whole of depth psychology and Jungian analysis in particular is getting to an understanding of what's happening in our unconscious and how we're not the masters of our own house. And the sooner we get that message and we realize, oh, there's all sorts of things pushing us from inside, whether they're unconscious narratives that we're living out, unconscious patterns of response, unconscious affects, or we may know what the affect is, but we don't know what's creating the affect. Mm -hmm. As soon as we learn that there's a play going on behind the curtain and we can't see it directly, and we begin to listen for the little clues that move through the curtain, through our dreams, through little things that pop into our head that we don't understand, little things that draw our eye during the course of the day and we don't really understand why our eye is even drawn to that thing, the sooner we can get to listening for this thing that's going on on an unconscious level and begin incorporating that into our thoughts about our motivations for behaving the way we do, the better off we're going to be. And reverie is a means of doing Reverie is exactly a means of doing that. It's trying to cultivate that conduit. So you, um, one of the exciting things about the chapter for me is you related reverie to a term that we see a lot in anthropology and uh, religious studies, uh, participation mystique. Mm -hmm. And could you, I was very excited to see that. So could you kind of break that down or... Yeah, let, let, let me start with just a concrete example of participation mystique. The, the, everybody's walking into a stadium, okay? And there's two teams playing. 
And whether you're talking college sports, whether you're talking professional sports, let's say a half the people in the audience are wearing a team jersey. Okay. And what happens when you do that? The, and the music starts and the cheering starts and your team scores a point and everybody leaps to their feet. Well, there's kind of an instantaneous community, a feeling of tribe, belonging, who you are is a little bit less important and who the community is becomes very important and that the feeling of belonging to that community feels really good. Now, sometimes if there's a bunch of other people wearing the other jersey, we feel animosity towards those people, and that's a different kind of participation mystique, and we want to defend our tribe against the other tribe. So that happens all of the time. That's one experience of participation mystique, which Jung defines as a blurring of boundaries between self and other, between self and environment, between self and things. So he would go, he, he did his own version of anthropology, visiting Native American cultures, African-American cultures, cultures in Africa, places like this and he would kind of sit and watch and notice their rituals and their patterns of behavior and to he could see that for some of these tribal figures things like stones were animated and in, in a sense he realized oh this isn't just a lack of understanding you know a primitiveness he understood that this was forming a different relationship so the interesting thing is, is Jung talked about it both ways as kind of a connection to, which he thought was good, but also a loss of personal identity, which he thought was not so great. And participation mystique within the Jungian world has kind of taken on a negative connotation mm. a lot of times. It's not all the time. So my second book, Shared Realities, was actually about trying to highlight some of the positive elements of um, participation mystique experience. And one of the one references I like to give is when I went to uh, a place called Terra Blues. It's a blues club in New York City. And it's a listening club meaning they don't want you to have your cell phone out. They don't want you talking during the performances. They want you to, if you're going to order drinks, they want you to order them between songs or between sets. It's very serious listening. Uh, and because of that, everybody's really tuned into what the band is doing. And as soon as the drummer comes out and puts down the first downbeat, it's like everybody's immediately in sync with the rhythm everybody in the room is instantly nodding their head, rocking their body, tapping their foot, tapping a finger. But I looked around the room, there wasn't a single person that was not in sync with that drummer immediately on the first downbeat. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a participation mystique. Everybody is sharing. Nobody knows anybody in there other than the person they're with. Mm -hmm. And yet everybody is locked in immediately to a unifying 
field experience. I would love to hear commentary from those musicians about what it's like to play before that audience relative to <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. this is interesting because the negative connotation, I'm assuming that it gets in the Jungian circle sometimes is that it's a, a loss of self into a, a group or mob mentality. Exactly. Jung was quite concerned about uh, or quite suspicious in a sense of group activities. And he thought they could quickly take on a participation mystique group think built around a charismatic figure. Uh, he, he had those concerns uh, during the rise of Nazism. Uh, and, uh, you know, actually wrote psychological profiles for the, uh, uh, the precursor to the CIA on Jung. Uh, there was a, a, an effort to try to arrange a meeting between Jung and Hitler for him to have a first-hand experience, but unfortunately uh, that fell through and wasn't able to come to fruition. Um, and so he was basing all of his psychological impressions of Hitler based on reports that the, um, I can't remember what the- OSS? The OSS, yes, yeah. thanks. Um, the OSS were providing him of personal accounts of observations and from things like news accounts and newsreels. And he was basing these reports that he gave that I read and were quite, I mean, it's, he, he, he does not have on his mystical alchemical hat when he's writing these things. He's got on his psychiatrist hat and he is incredibly astute and perceptive uh, about what's happening with Hitler, certainly based on what we now know about Hitler's personality composition that wasn't widely known at the time Jung was writing these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when I think, you know, I, you're, I got to say that, that going into the stadium thing, I mean, that, that's, that's great because it's a pretty mystifying concept you know you brought it down to earth and i suspect you're probably a titans fan but i won't hold that against you um <laughs> actually I, I use this uh when i'm doing this live as a presentation i use this uh, a series of clips from a seattle seahawks game that's just wild you know and you can see the way these people are looking at each other in the audience, like they're so excited. They don't know the guy, t you know, three rows up and, but they're making eye contact and they're feeling this shared thing. It's so, it's such a great illustration of, of this experience. Well, and it would seem that it's at the very heart of um, ritual, religious experience. I mean, when it's working, I mean, right. I grew up in a liberal Protestant thing, and you know most people in the pews looked embarrassed to be there. Um, then, a, then a few years ago, I got taken to a African American, I guess you could call it a Baptocostal mm -hmm. church, and you know it was. And by the same token, I've been in Catholic masses where that sense of participation is very strong, even though it's more subdued. Right, and you know you go to a Greek Orthodox. Uh, uh, 
ceremony and you know they've got the the acapella chorus going the chanting the incense Mm -hmm. you know the processional uh you know and all of that stuff ideally when it's working does create a participational mystique you're in a mystical experience so in that shared realities book uh, a well-known new york analyst named michael eigen wrote a chapter for me uh, and he just does a little wordplay instead of participation mystique he says mystical participation which i think just that shift creates such a, a wonderful illustration of what, what we're trying to do when we're conscious of those sorts of dynamics and attempting to not manipulate them, but to use them creatively to deepen an experience. So I, I would assume that what Jung ideal, ideal development would involve not the loss of the capacity for that, but not but you 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 keep the gains of ego development and you retain the ability to do that not one at the expense of the other right so ideally one could uh go to go to hear uh, a mystical teacher for example be profoundly impacted but not necessarily feel that the teacher had all of the answers for your life I think you, that would be an opening up to that Jung would be able to appreciate. But if somebody felt like, oh, this is the guy, this is the woman who has all of the answers for me, I'm going to join their community and follow them for, forever. Right. That yeah. would be the destructive aspect of participation and mystique, mm-hmm. where they've gotten lost in it. And would he say that the temptation to do that in in the modern world grows as as things grow, become more problematic meaning you know the way the world is right now for example the temptation to fall into that kind of i don't have to think anymore i have to, i can abdicate my free will and simply follow this person well, if we just look back to his essay on UFOs, uh-huh. so in the in the nineteen late nineteen forties, early nineteen fifties, there was this rash of U.S. UFO sightings around the world, uh, and Jung wrote an essay about what he thought was going on, and he thought it was an expression of the decline of religious formal religious belief in in the West and that the fabric of people were becoming unchurched, not um, not adhering to a particular religious dogma at a a very rapid pace. You know, this was the whole uh, God is dead kind of philosophy that came out of Nietzsche, even though Nietzsche wasn't speaking literally. Uh, But he, he saw this real... Uh, erosion of traditional religious belief, and he thought the sighting of UFOs was an unconscious projection culturally of needing something larger than ourselves to believe in. Mm-hmm. And so, if we, so he saw it as symptomatic of the culture and what was deficit or missing in the culture. And I think we can look now to 
our contemporary sightings, our contemporary experience and see almost an identical thing of uh, something like Trumpism is a symptom of something. Uh, you know, it's a desire to believe in something. And so it takes on almost, not almost, it takes on a religious fervor, gets mixed up with religious beliefs, and it's almost impossible to uh, confront the group that believes with contradictory facts and have that change their position because it's not a rational position, it's a religious position. Right. And so, of course, it's not just Trump and the US, there's populist figures like Trump all around the world right now. Mm -hmm. So I think it was Edinger seemed to make the claim that in this time, for a person to have an authentic uh, religious life, it may have to be something looking a lot more like analysis, meaning it would necessarily involve a movement away from the group into the, the depths of soul. And I, I, I know he took a lot of heat for that because I think he was, some people took him to suggest that the analytic psychology should have the status of a religion. But what do you think of that? Do you think that this, the, that the move towards individuation is, um, speaks to the essential spiritual need of this time as opposed to finding it in the group? I, I think it is a need for a certain group of individuals. I, I think for people who have uh, like Jung had a patient who came to him who came from a traditional Jewish background. And Jung questioned him about his religious beliefs and asked him, why are you seeking analysis? And, you know, the, the man gave him a rather intellectual idea about that. And he, and he said, what you're looking for in analysis is already available to you in your religious faith. You need to go back to your synagogue. And so he had the belief that if somebody's religious process is functioning for them, they don't need analysis. Now, I think there's a few gray areas in between that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a variety of ways people can individuate, and it doesn't have to be uh, th only through Jungian analysis. I think somebody can individuate through their artistic or creative process. Mm -hmm. I think people can individuate through self-reflection. I think it's harder because we don't know what our own blind spots are. And so it's helpful to have somebody else who can empathize with where you're at, but also point out, you know, you don't notice this happening. Uh, and that it, to me is a central and important, you know, part of the process. I spent nine years in analysis uh, and I'd like to go back at some point into analysis uh, because it's not like we get, you know, we empty out the unconscious and we deal with all of our defenses. They creep back in in different ways. They, we develop new defenses. We develop new blind spots. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we're at a better place and have more tools to deal with them. Uh, but no, I don't think everybody needs to go into analysis. I think 
nor do I think everybody is capable of self-reflection in the kind of self-reflection that results in growth. But I do agree with Edinger that this is a viable uh, avenue for people to go down as an alternative to religious life. Yeah, and the, the, your point's well taken because when you talk about the person that can help you with the blind spot, mm -hmm. that seems that role seems to be, we have a great need for that now. That, and often the people that, that once held that role aren't capable of doing it. Right. Um, but And certainly something like a, a recovery group can serve that function or a sponsor can serve that function. Now, the, the obvious uh, issue is that, that those people may have some of the same blind spots. Uh, right. Right. Well, one of the reasons why we're talking is that, you know, a lot of this audience are people who had, um, I wouldn't hesitate to say religious experiences, not so much in AA, but with the 12 steps. And as that deepened and evolved, now they're at a point where it's not working anymore, or if it's, it's, it's diminished returns. And so they are seeking something beyond. And the dimension of depth and soul is, except for something like a fourth step, is pretty absent in mm -hmm. the 12-step world. Yeah, it seems like the 12-step philosophy is to try to open you up to the possibility of uh, uh, something transcendent. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure I, it seems like it's more on encouraging people to be accepting of all forms of uh, transcendent experience uh, as opposed, but not necessarily on helping people deepen their experience of the transcendent. I think that's fair. Bill Wilson described it as a spiritual kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So it can right. get you going, but um, it also tends towards a kind of, um, uh, bibliodolatry, meaning, you know, it's very much about a book and mm -hmm. um, it's very, you know, to speak in like Hillman, it's very spirit kind of at the expense of soul. Mm -hmm. So that interiority, that dimension needs to be, you know, really found somewhere else. Yeah. yeah so to put it in uh, religious terms, I find God everywhere. Not at, literally everywhere, but I find God in a wide variety of things. Uh, you know, in a poem by Rilke, in a Marc Chagall painting, you know, in a song by U2 or Muddy Waters, all of those things seem to me to be transcendent experiences. Well, this has been really helpful. Um, <laughs> my big takeaway is going to be the football stadium. Okay. I'll never watch the game with the fellas the same again. Okay, fair enough. And um, if anyone is interested in finding out more about you or your work, where should they go? Uh, www.drmarkwinborn.com, D-R-M-A-R-K-W-I-N-B-O-R-N.com. All of my publications are on, you can find the titles for all of my publications on there, how to get in touch with me, 
my philosophy of analysis, uh, things like that. It's all, that's the easiest place. Well, thank you very much. And I'm very glad that Corey urged me towards you. Well, that's a, a synchronicity, of course. In some way, we may not know why that synchronicity happens, but the longer I stay in this process, the more I have faith in those kind of interweavings. Great. Me too. All right. Thank Thanks, Piers. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.